One or two headlines from the Christian website this week. Uh, one of the ones I look at. One said, Beer and the Bible. It was basically an article about how a church has sold its present facility to open up a, a new location where they will now have an in-house brewery for the community and will actually serve on tap cold beer in the midst of the worship service. Another article, same day actually I was on the site, uh, said video game church to advance the kingdom of God. So now you can play video games. That's a part of the worship service and making efforts to advance the kingdom of God. Well, listen, in this passage in front of us this morning, here we find in the Bible the very first time the word church appears in the Bible. And interestingly enough, and I think very fitting, we find it on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in connection to the first mention of the word church, we see, I think, some lessons attached to it that gives some insight as we look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples and his followers leading up to his first mention, his first announcement of this thing that we call church, allowing us to see, I believe, what Jesus intended for his church to be and what his heart was for it foremost. Now, let me just say, since we haven't been in Matthew's gospel prior to this study, just a quick background prior to what we're looking at this morning, the events prior, Jesus has just warned his followers, the disciples, regarding the dangers of the established religious leaders of that particular day, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees had wrongly reduced spiritual life to strict rule-keeping, to religious observances alone. And I think that's fitting. A lot of times people's mentality of church is religious rituals and kind of rules that we're supposed to keep and so forth. And unfortunately, the Pharisees had sort of wrongly reduced spiritual life, not really to intimacy and relationship with God, but just doing a few rituals, following some observances that seemed religious in nature. The Sadducees, another established religious group in that day, they were sort of the spiritual liberals, if you would, of that day in the ancient culture. They were sort of the ones who had a, a label of spirituality, but really sort of anything was still okay to do. The Sadducees were very liberal in their theology and beliefs. Uh, they did not believe really in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection after death. And they really endorsed kind of enjoying the material and temporal realm to the full. Uh, it was sort of an anything goes. They upheld no moral or righteous standards of conduct. And that was sort of the, the Sadducees among the religious movement of the day. Well, look, Jesus knows that what people in the world need is a true encounter with the living God an experience with the God of heaven and creation. And the way that happens is by knowing the Lord Jesus in a personal relationship. Look with me in verse 13 with that backdrop. It says, verse 13, when Jesus came now into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, 
the Son of Man am. So Jesus leads his disciples at this point, we're told, to a unique location. He takes them to the far north, up to the area of Caesarea Philippi, where in this place, he's now going to deepen their understanding regarding some vital spiritual truths. It says they moved to Caesarea Philippi. We know that area is about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee which is way up in the northern part of Israel, north of that, it was a territory in that day that was mainly non-Jewish. It was a Gentile territory predominantly, so there were a lot of pagan practices and customs. And Caesarea Philippi was specifically known as an area where there were many, many temples and altars to all types of foreign deities, of Baal worship, of the worship of Pan, and even an altar and a temple in that area to Caesar worship that existed. And interestingly enough, Jesus takes his followers to this area known for the worship of all these foreign, fake gods, if you would, and it is there in that place that he asked them this leading question in verse 13 to draw out a process for his lesson that he wants to give to them spiritually. It's there he says to them this searching question, who do men say that I, not these other deities and temples and altars, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? In other words, Jesus says, what is the opinion of people about me? What are people saying about me? So Jesus, understand, he's comfortable with who he is. Jesus knows all things about all men. He's not asking this really to get information he's not aware of. This is part of a spiritual education process where the Lord, assembled together with his followers in their midst, is asking them to really consider and think through some important spiritual truths. He wants them to express what people think about who he is. And as I look at this little picture in light of the first time Jesus is going to use the word church, it reminds me that part of the existence, really one thing, of, uh, of what church is to be, the local church, when we assemble together with Jesus as his followers, part of what the process intended for that is, one thing for sure, is that it can be an atmosphere where people can work through their spiritual questions as human beings so that they can come to right conclusions about who Jesus is. Where people can have searching questions that we all do about life and spirituality and what's true about God and who is Jesus and in the atmosphere of the loving assembly of the Lord and his people, people can work through those questions and they can come to a proper conclusion and that's what's going to happen in the story about who Jesus really is. So verse 14, we get their answer. They say to Jesus in light of this question, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the disciples now start to share with Jesus the various conclusions that existed in that day, popular opinion in society regarding the person of Jesus. The first thing they say to him there, if you see it in the text, verse 14, they say, some say you are John the Baptist. Now remember, John the Baptist was a very powerful preacher and teacher in regards to truth truth about the kingdom of God, about repentance of sin, uh, about what it meant to live righteous before God. He brought a great spiritual revival in his day. And some thought, interesting, that Jesus was John the Baptist who had been executed at this point, that he'd kind of come back from the dead 
And now he was carrying on his teaching ministry once more. And I look at that and I think that's fitting because today, is it not true that many people see Jesus as sort of a powerful teacher? Someone who taught really good things and had some really great things to say and just a powerful teacher of God. And that's what some people believe about the person of Jesus. He was a good moral and spiritual teacher. They secondly said, verse 14, some say that you're Elijah. Now, interesting, the Old Testament said that Elijah would return and come again before the Messiah came. And remember, Elijah, we're looking at his life now on Wednesday evenings. Elijah was what? He was a great and a powerful prophet of God and someone who was known for incredible miracles in his ministry. And again, I think what a fitting answer because today as well, some people, when they are asked who Jesus is, they would say, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus was a prophet or Jesus was a miracle worker. He did great miracles by the power of God during his life on earth. Thirdly, they say others believe that you are perhaps Jeremiah or just one of the prophets generally that it again come back from the dead. Again, as we think of Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah was a prophet who was known as the weeping prophet. He had great compassion for the people. He was someone who had deep concern for all the ills in society and all the problems that existed and just someone who had a great heart of mercy and compassion for the people and wanted to see the problems of the nation be resolved among the people. And I look at that as well and I think, what again, a fitting view because some today hold the view that Jesus was basically just a good man who had great compassion and love for humanity and that he wanted to bring solutions to the social ills of the society and nation, whether it's poverty or other forms of struggle that people have. And, and some see Jesus as just a, a good, compassionate man who came and, and ministered to many people and sought to help people. And look, though all of those views, having just mentioned, have some measure of truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet to a degree. He was a miracle worker. He had incredible compassion and ministered, healed the sick and helped the poor and did these things in his ministry. Not one of those things is fully accurate or sufficient in a full and proper understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ was. They all fall drastically short. In other words, Jesus was not just a great teacher. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just a miracle worker or not just someone who had compassion and did good works. All those perspectives give some detail about Jesus, but they all understate exactly who Jesus really was. They all fall short of a full explanation of who Jesus really is and his main purpose. Now, it's at this point when they answer Jesus, we're going to see verse 15 gets very direct and he makes things get really personal now in his question. In a sense, Jesus listens to their answer to his question, who do men say that I am? And Jesus basically now verse 15 says, thanks for sharing what the general crowds are saying. Appreciate the information. But then verse 15, he then said to his disciples standing there, those assembled that day, but who do you say that I am? Thank you for telling me what everybody else is saying about me. But there's a personal thing that needs to be resolved here. Who do you say that I am? 
And I think the emphasis truly there is on the word you, that Jesus was emphasizing who do you say that I am? Not what do others say about me? Who do you say that I'm? He made the question and the answer a personal decision that must be faced. Something that they as individuals had to address and come to a conclusion about because each person has to come to their own personal crisis point in this life to consider that reality. Who is Jesus to you personally? Not who is he to your spouse or to your parents or or to your friends or to other people. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Where do you land on that? Where do you personally, as an individual soul before God, your creator, fall into that category in your life? Who is Jesus to you? That is a question that is a soul-searching question that every human soul must address at some point. And perhaps even today, Jesus is speaking in his voice to you directly today, asking you pointedly, who do you say that I am? It's time for you to decide. Who do you personally say that I am? Who am I to you? Regardless of who I am to the person next to you or anyone else in the room around you or anyone else in the culture, society, who am I to you? What am I to you? And Jesus presses that question home because he wants the disciples and he wants you and I to know what we believe of him for ourselves in relation to our own life. And too often, I think perhaps maybe the reason for this is, is God knows that we can tend to have this you know, uh, sort of capacity as human beings where we always want to brush off that which is difficult to deal with. And we kind of want to ignore sometimes spiritual responsibility or the reality that we do need to answer certain questions. And we sometimes want to take spiritual life and responsibility and we want to push it aside and kind of just cling to, to the beliefs of other people around us. Well, our family beliefs... Or, you know, we're Baptists, or we're Methodists, or we're Calvary Chapelites, or, you know, we're this, or not we're. What are you? Who is Jesus to you in your soul? As someone who one day, like every person, realizes it is not going to matter what your family believes about Jesus. It's not going to matter what your friends do or don't believe about Jesus, how they answer that. Jesus is going to say, who do you say that I am? And that personal encounter with that decision regarding Jesus is critical. And I ask you today, have you faced that question yet? Have you sincerely come to a conclusion for yourself because every human being has to confront that question and answer? It can't be avoided. And how I... And how you as an individual answer that question determines your eternal destiny. Hell and torment and the lake of fire forever and ever and ever or eternal life and the glorious peace and joy and comfort of heaven hangs in the balances. How you answer that question of Jesus, who do you say that I am to you? The answer to that question, listen, is sealed at your death. It's sealed at your death. And that is a question that cannot be avoided and we will stand alone before God and the throne of God and give account 
for what our answer was to that question. It is a life-searching, important, the most important eternal question. And my question today is, is are you prepared to stand before your Creator? Because you will, all by yourself, and answer that question. Are you comfortable with the answer to that question? Are you confident that you know the answer to that question? This question of Jesus goes forth, Who do you say that I am? To which verse 16, Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter often being bold and brave. I don't know if he's answering specifically for himself or collectively for the disciples, but he takes the cue and he answers the the question with incredible confidence. It's almost as if Peter had no hesitation. In his heart, he was at a place where he knew what he believed. And Peter's confession of personal faith states in verse 16 two main things in regards to who Jesus is and what he believed about Jesus. He confessed that Jesus was the Savior for mankind and that he was God living amongst humanity. Notice, first of all, his first thing he states, he says of Jesus, his confession personally, you are the Christ. The Christos is what the Greek is there, the, the, the anointed one. And again, the word Christ or Christos is the Greek term that was used to define the title or the uh, phrase Messiah, which was the Hebrew term. And the Messiah, remember, was the coming savior or the coming deliverer that God promised he was sending to his people. The Messiah, the savior, the deliverer, was the predicted one in the Old Testament scriptures. God gave hundreds, hundreds of specific predictions or prophecies of this Messiah deliverer that he was sending to the earth that would come among humanity as a savior for the people. And the Messiah in Christ was to come and rescue and redeem and to bring the kingdom of God. Isaiah 61 said that Messiah would preach good tidings to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Peter here with confidence believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one that God said that he would send in fulfillment to these prophecies. And Peter also noticed the second part of verse 16. He also confessed and believed of Jesus. He said, and you are the son of the living God. In other words, you are God's own son. That was a declaration by Peter that Jesus was more than just a man, that he was God living in the body of a man, that he was God who took on a second nature, a human nature, that he was God among them. And again, Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, a miraculous supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin woman. And and the Bible says, prophetically, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally translated means God with us Isaiah 9 verse 6 as well tells us for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace 
Again, prophetically saying that the mighty God, the everlasting father would come in the form of a child being born. You have both the humanity and the deity in that one prophecy in Isaiah 9. A child is born. That's humanity. That's on the human side. A child would be born. And then on the divine side, it says a son is given. God in heaven gave his eternal blessed son sitting at his right hand. God gave his son and the way that happened is he was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin and therefore a child was then born. That child was the Lord Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man simultaneously. God took on a second nature and became a man being fully God and fully man. And look, that is why Peter believed rightly that Jesus was God that he was God dwelling among them. He wasn't just a prophet or a teacher sent by God. He, he was God in their midst. He was God living as a man, revealing himself to humanity, ministering among the people and being God and man. That's why Jesus becomes the perfect mediator between God and mankind. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in 1 Timothy 2 that God, our Savior, notice God becomes our Savior. God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's because of who Jesus was that he could be that perfect bridge and mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus, being the perfect bridge. Peter was believing and making verbal proclamation of exactly what was true about Jesus. And I love this scene again here as we think of it in relation to Jesus using the word church here for the first time. Here is the Lord. He's assembled with his followers. And in the midst of that gathering, what happens? What do you find? You find Peter believing accurately about Jesus and speaking things that are true about Jesus. I think what a beautiful picture there of the assembly of the church in an embryonic form there. You have there in that scene people believing who the Lord Jesus accurately is in all of his fullness doctrinally. You have someone, Peter at least, here giving public honor to Jesus amongst those who are assembled Almost a beautiful picture of praise and worship. He's proclaiming and praising Jesus. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, giving him honor so that he's glorified and worshiped as God and Savior. And a proclamation being made before other listeners of things that are true about the Lord Jesus. And I look at that and I think, wow, Lord, may that always please remain what the church is about. People accurately believing who you are and people giving honor publicly as they're assembled to you as God and Savior and people speaking about you accurately regarding your nature and all of who you are. Well, as Peter makes this miraculous, marvelous confession about Jesus in verse 17, notice Jesus then says in light of Peter's statement, he said to him, blessed are you Simon Barjona or son of Jonah is what that means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So notice, as Peter makes this marvelous confession about Jesus being the Christ and the Son of the living God, it's at this point Jesus informs Peter and those listening what really has happened in his life 
in order for Peter to have been able to come into the spiritual condition he was now in, in his understanding about Jesus, and to believe rightly about who Jesus is. And take notice what Jesus is saying. Peter, you did not arrive at that understanding or hold that belief by just human reasoning alone. But Peter, what actually happened, he says, it required an experience of a spiritual revelation from God in your life. He says to him, look at the text there, verse 17, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now listen, certainly, absolutely, human reasoning has its part in our spiritual life. God's given us a mind. He's given us the capacity to reason and to think and, and a will to choose about what we do think. Yet Peter could not take credit that he came to the right conclusion about Jesus in his own life because of his own human reasoning capacities alone. It wasn't that he was just such a smart guy and such a good critical thinker and that he'd been to the right you know, schools of theology and he went to the best seminary and so now he's doctrinally sound in regards to who Jesus is. It was not a natural process alone, understand, of studying facts or reading information or hearing things by lecture that came to drawing this conclusion. Peter's intellectual experience would not have been enough by itself. That's why Jesus says, rather, Peter, it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but he says, going on, it was my Father in heaven who revealed this to you. He wanted Peter to understand God had worked supernaturally in Peter's life by a work of the Spirit to reveal this truth. That understanding came as the direct result of a spiritual revelation from God. There was a spiritual revelation that took place inside of Peter's heart and mind and soul and spirit where God gave him clarity. God opened his eyes, the eyes of his heart, if you would. God opened his understanding as a sinful, weak, darkened human being and even gave him the faith to express what he believed in Christ. Jesus wanted him to understand it required a gracious intervention of God to show this to Peter. If you would, God shined the light inside of Peter's soul and illuminated Peter as a human being to come to a place where he realized who he was and who he was standing before and that this was the Savior. This is the Son of God. This is what I need and what I'm missing in my life. And he's saying, Peter, don't think this came just out of your effort. Peter, if the Father in heaven did not divinely break into your life personally and shine the light of God into your soul and open the eyes of your heart and mind, you would have never seen this reality. You'd never know and believe what you do. And it's for that reason Peter should realize how blessed of a man he was that God the Father had opened his understanding shined that light into him and that should cause Peter having that awareness to realize how blessed he was what happened it should cause Peter to be utterly humbled and to feel like that in this amazing way he has no other thing to do but be completely grateful that God would do such a gracious compassionate thing inside of his dark soul in such a way and that it would inspire him to worship. How could you not want to worship when you realize what's happened? 
How could Peter not be so grateful and humbled? And any of us, listen, this morning, who have come to a saving experience and relationship and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's exactly what has happened in our soul. The exact same thing. It wasn't our own human reasoning. God illuminated our understanding by a spiritual revelation and an experience of a spirit inside of our soul. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul speaks of how the minds of those who do not believe are blinded by the devil. And it says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. In other words, understand what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying those who currently do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the way that a Christian does, their unbelief allows the devil to be able to blind them spiritually. You know, who's not said to somebody before, maybe you're trying to share your faith or tell somebody about Jesus and share the gospel, and you may not even say it, but you're thinking to yourself, are you blind? Yeah, they are. That's the problem. You're thinking, okay, let me, look, you understand you're sinful. You understand you've made mistakes. Yes. You understand that makes you guilty before. Yes. Okay, I, Jesus loves you. He came. He lived the perfect sinless life. You can't. You don't even have to do it. You can't do it. You're a failure and a sinner, but you're going to go to hell if you continue to live in that condition. But yet Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment, all the pain that you deserve. And then he rose again the third day. He powerfully rose over the death process. And he's alive and he's ascended back into heaven and Jesus will forgive all your sin. Everything you've done wrong, he'll wash you clean. Brand new start in life. Take away all your guilt and sh sin and shame. And he'll just wipe it all away and, and, and he'll give you the gift of eternal life in heaven forever. All you got to do is believe. And all you got to do is receive. Jesus wants to give this to you, but you have to receive it. You have to make a choice to receive him. Do you want to receive Jesus Christ? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I want to think about that a little bit longer. Right? Are you blind? Yeah. They're, as long as they choose not to believe or believe they don't really need that because you know they're, they're kind of good enough. I mean, they're, they grew up Christian. They grew up churchy. They grew up, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm working my way in. I'm just, and they have their own mindset until they come to a place where they can set aside everything and realize that they are a humble sinner before God and they need to be saved by Jesus. That unbelief, the devil can keep them blinded. But the wonderful thing is when a person comes to a salvation experience, what happens is there is a divine breakthrough in the life of a person describing his own salvation experience coming from spiritual revelation. Listen to what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I love this verse. He said, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, here's how the salvation experience happened. The same God who commanded light in creation commanded light to shine out of total darkness. God said, let there be light. And boom, out of total darkness, God spoke light into existence. He says that same God who spoke light into the darkness in creation, that's what he did with your human heart if you got saved. God spoke light into your soul and allowed you to see for a brief moment in his mercy the reality of the condition of your soul and who Jesus was and what he was offering and said, would you believe it? Believe it. 
You're having a, a, a revelation right now. Believe it. I'm showing this to you in this moment. And it is that that brought us to that place to be able to see clearly God revealed to us our need and who Jesus is as Savior and as the Son of God. To, and that should make us so very grateful. And it should cause us all to remember too that look, the Christian life is not just an intellectual thing alone. God help us. Look, I love the Bible. We should be students of the Word. We put a great emphasis on the Word of God in our ministry at Calvary Chapel. But help us, Lord, please, to not think it's just an intellectual exercise. That it's all about academia. The Christian life is not just about an intellectual thing alone. It is a supernatural life dependent upon a spiritual experience with God where the Spirit of God is helping us to do what we can't do in our humanity and that we need the help of God's Spirit. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2. Let me just read it to you before we move on. I love this section. He says, It is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of the man in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we speak, not in word which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing things spiritual with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, that section of Scripture emphasizing we understand what we do spiritually because of the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that reveals these things to us. We need to be dependent upon the person of the Holy Spirit to experience that revelation. And the most important discovery any person can come to in their life is the discovery from the revelation of God in their heart of who Jesus is. That's the indication from heaven's perspective of a blessed life. And look, when the church is assembled, operating as it should, do you know what should be happening? Exactly what Jesus says there in verse 17. People should be experiencing revelation from God in their life. When they were assembled that day, the first day Jesus mentioned anything about church and what it was to be, here's Jesus' followers assembled with the Lord Jesus. And, and on that day, what was happening when they were assembled? Peter was having a revelation from God. And when we assemble as the Lord's people, as the church, when we come together, the Father in heaven will be at work. He should be revealing things to us in our souls, speaking things into our lives, giving us light and direction in the inner person. That's what should be happening. The Father should be revealing things to us about the Lord Jesus. Not what kind of beer to get from the tap. Not what character to use in the next video game. No, revealing things to us about Jesus where we know Him better and we leave with Him more than we were when we first came. Verse 18, Jesus then says, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So again, here's the first time Jesus introduces that word church. First time it shows up, 
It's on the lips of Jesus when his followers are together with him. And it tells us some truths in connection, I think, as I said, to what church, perhaps from the Lord's perspective, was really intended to be. Interesting, the word church itself, Jesus uses there, verse 18. It's ecclesia in the Greek. It was a common term that spoke of ecclesia, an assembly or those who are called out to assemble together uh, and to gather together, a special assembly, which tells us something right away. We learn that the church does not refer to a building itself or a structure or a particular meeting place. The word church is a reference to people. It's those who assemble together, those who gather together, a called out assembly. The church is a group of people who have been called out of living in the unsaved world and have now been called together to follow Jesus instead. We assemble together because we share a common love and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. So you might accurately say the church is a reference to those who know Jesus, who worship Jesus, and who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in connection to that wonderful confession Peter's just made about Jesus in verse 17 That Jesus then says now here in verse 18, that I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So verse 16, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. First thing he does is, Peter, let me tell you where that confession came from. Not really from you, but from heaven revealing that to you. And then he says, and Peter, in light of that confession you've just made so accurately about me, he says, I want you to know You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, Jesus is indicating, notice, he would indeed establish and build his church on a specific foundation. He make a reference to to a rock there. The question is, what is he referring? What is the rock upon which he would build his church? Well, the language here helps in some ways when you look at it. He says, you are Peter, Petros in the Greek, which is a term that means a detached stone or piece of rock. And then Jesus changes the term when he says, and on this rock, Petra, with an A, different Greek word, which speaks of a large area of bedrock. Upon this Petra, this large area of bedrock, I will build my church on that bedrock. Now, from the language change of the Greek words, from the overall teaching of the Bible, and let me go one step further, and from common sense... I do not believe that Jesus was saying that he would build his church upon Peter. No disrespect to the apostle Peter. But I have a very hard time thinking that Jesus would establish and build his church on a fallible, unstable human being. That Jesus would take something that is so critical to the total plan of God and and, and the eternal destiny of people and that he would build and establish that on someone that is a sinful human being and a fallible, weak man, which Peter was, like every other human being who's ever lived and breathed on this planet. There is no person that is infallible. Only Jesus was the sinless, infallible man who ever lived. And, and it just simply makes no sense to me. Something as important as the church, as I said, no disrespect to the apostle Peter, but why would God entrust and build the church upon a man it would just make absolutely no sense it contradicts scripture and God is a wise builder and a good steward and when God's going to build and establish his church on something it is on something much more reliable as a foundation much more dependable that will never falter 
and never fail. So I believe what Jesus is referring to, that solid bedrock that Jesus builds his church upon, is the confession, verse 16, that Jesus just received from Peter's words where Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus built this whole thing to draw that answer out as heaven revealed it to Peter on that day, knowing what Jesus was going to say so that Peter would say directly and clearly, Jesus, you are the Christ and you're the Son of the living God. And it is thinking about that confession, that truth about Jesus, that truth that he is the Savior and the Son of God, that Peter said, right on and upon that bedrock Petra foundation of proclaiming what's true about me I will build my church upon that what is true of me and what is said that's accurate about me I will build upon that as my church the proper understanding and proclamation of who Jesus is is the foundation of the church that's why 1 Corinthians 3.11 says no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ And the way that Jesus builds his church, how he builds his church, is by the proclamation of what is true about our Lord Jesus. Read through the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul says, we we don't preach ourselves or present ourselves or present our ministry or our style or our slick church. We present Jesus. That's what we preach. We tell people about Jesus. It's not who we are. He says we, people need to know that Christ Jesus is the Lord. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2, we determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the communication of Jesus being God and Savior that builds the church because that's where spiritual transformation happens, right? That's what Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, he said, because it, the gospel of Christ, the good news of who Jesus Christ is and how He saves He says, that's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. That is how the church is built and and moved forward as the Lord builds it. Notice also a few other things from verse 18. We see the church clearly belongs to who? Not a man, not any ministry organization, but to Jesus. He calls it what? Verse 18, my church, my church. Jesus takes complete ownership and makes it clear that the church is his bride It's his flock that it belongs to him and his ownership. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church is blood bought. The gathering of the Lord's people was blood bought and it belongs to Jesus, who is the head of the church, the Bible says. We're just the body who respond to his direction. Jesus is the foundation and the head of the church. The Bible teaches that we're just like living stones, Peter says. We're just stones that Jesus adds in to this spiritual house, if you would. He being the foundation and the bedrock, we're living stones put together to build a spiritual house for the dwelling place of God on this earth. Look, such an important thing for us to always, always remember. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. And how we relate to his church, how we do ministry, how we worship, we should always remember it's his church belongs to him that sets a totally different tone for how we approach those things notice also jesus desire and will is to build his church because he says there in verse 18 it's a promise i will build my church jesus wants to build his church 
We can know that as a promise of God that, that assures us he desires for his church to be established and built up in all ways. And he promises to take responsibility to do it. He says, I will build my church. Well, none of us can technically as a person build the Lord's church. We can co-labor with Jesus. He lets us participate. But the true church can only be built as a supernatural work of the Lord happens because Jesus says, I will build. I build it. And we just get to participate in the process, but we can't cause it to happen. Notice also, lastly, that Jesus in verse 18 makes another promise. He says, I will build my church. And he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So notice Jesus promises any effort to hinder the building of his church, he says, will not be successful. It won't prevail. He says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Now, the gates, we know biblically and from ancient culture, was the place in the city where those who had positions of authority or leadership would gather in the city gate to plot and strategize. It's where they would come up with their plans and their decisions to carry out activities or to engage in war. And Hades is the place of the dead. It's the place biblically where departed souls of unbelievers are now kept until they are ultimately cast into the lake of fire and eternal torment. And so Hades in scripture becomes a symbolic place of both death and the forces of evil. So as Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. In essence, he's saying the sinful effects of death among humanity and all the strategies and plots and plans of evil and demonic forces and all the schemes of Satan to be brought against the church, he says, it's not going to prevail. It will never succeed. It will never ultimately accomplish what it tries to because Jesus triumphs over all forces. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. And, and Jesus has authority over Satan and the power of hell. Look, death and the forces of hell and evil, are they going to attack the church? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's called spiritual warfare. But Jesus' wonderful promise is Satan will not succeed in what he attempts to do in resistance against God's people. That if you are belonging to the Lord and a part of his church, that you can have confidence Jesus is stronger. He has more authority. And Satan may scheme and work and attack and assault, but he won't prevail. Because the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, through Jesus. And he won't let the devil prevail as he seeks to work among his people. You know, from this story, Jesus mentions church here. We learn such a beautiful picture here, the gathering of the Lord's followers coming aside. And what's happening again in this scene, can I remind you? They're gathered together. People are coming into a deeper and a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. People in the midst of this scene here are giving honor and glory to Jesus for who he is to them Personally, you're my savior. You're my God. People are hearing the, the voice of the Lord. God is revealing things to people in the depths of their soul. People in this scene are learning things about the heart of the Lord, what Jesus desires to do. They're hearing Jesus speak to them and Jesus is assuring them and giving them promises. Listen, that's church. God help us to keep it what it's supposed to be. Amen?